Good morning. <clears throat> this morning's scripture, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. <clears throat> now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill, fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all of the male children in Bethlehem, in all of that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And that concludes our scripture for this morning. <clears throat> Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you this morning. This morning, 2,000 years after you came to this earth, and as John said in his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A very good description of Christmas, a celebration of Jesus, taking on human form and living with us, the greatest sacrifice that could ever be made, fully chosen by Christ, not forced, done of his own divine will, a will that sought to please his Father, that was done to redeem fallen humanity, you and I, sinners, each and every one of us. 
at Christmas, we remember Jesus lived a life in human form, came to earth as an infant, and grew as we do. But that baby lived a sin-free life, a life we cannot. And in that life, and its sacrifice, he paid our penalty. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we confess our sins, and we ask for their forgiveness. We ask for your help to know your plan for our lives, Lord. Help us to honor you each and every day with our actions. God, we ask for your blessings on our conversations. Help us to honor you with all that we say. Guard our minds and our thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Father, I ask for your blessings on this service. Help us to see the love that you have for us and help us to share it with everyone that we know. Lord, please empower Duncan as he preaches your word. Give him physical strength and a sharp mind to minister to us, the body of North Shore. Father, help us to hear your word and allow it to penetrate our hearts and make us more Christ-like. God, we pray for your glory to shine even brighter in this body of believers this Christmas morning. In Jesus' name, amen. On this Christmas morning, we're going to peer into a part of the Christmas story that is not as well known as many of the others. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the flight to Egypt when, as we just heard, Joseph, at the command of an angel of the Lord, takes Mary and their newborn son, Jesus, to Egypt to escape murderous King Herod. Let's again just review some of what Andy read, because we only hear this story probably once a year, and sometimes this story, not even that. You may recall that the Magi, or the wise men, had seen the star, but they don't go to Bethlehem first. They go to Jerusalem first. They wanted to know precisely where this king was to be born. When King Herod heard about the wise men and the supernatural sign that they were following, Matthew said, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Everyone in Jerusalem knew of Herod's cruelty and ruthlessness. If you read the history of King Herod, he is one of the worst human beings that has ever had power, ever. And that includes some of the people in the 20th century. This man wanted a whole stadium full of people murdered at the news of his death so that someone would be sad when he died. Okay, that's, that's about the kind of person we're talking about with Herod. This guy was an absolute butcher. And so everybody knew that when Herod was upset, that was not a good thing. And so that put everyone on edge. And so Herod calls in the Jewish religious leaders, now that he knows there's the Messiah that these magi have heard about through the star. And so they ask, he asks them where he's going to be born. And the leaders, in one of the most ironic parts of the whole Christmas story, the leaders, these Jewish religious priests, come in and they know that Herod wants to eliminate this rival to his throne, and yet they open the door for him to do that by citing Micah 5.2 and says, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. With friends like that, Herod then informs the wise men of the place of the birth, and so he sends them off to Bethlehem, charging them to come back when they find him, so that he could come and worship him. The wise men head for Bethlehem. They follow the star to where Jesus was. And at the prospect of seeing this Jewish king, in great contrast to the Jewish religious leaders, 
These pagan astrologers rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11 of chapter 2 of Matthew says, And going into the house, they saw the child with, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Well, that tells us two things. First of all, for whatever reason, we don't know, Joseph's not part of this story. He doesn't apparently meet the wise men. It also tells us that they're in a house. Now, we can't be sure whose house it is, whether it was the house that is connected with the animal enclosure where the manger was, or whether it's some other, we don't know. But the point is, they've moved from the outside, whether it's a stable or a cave, inside to a house. We do know that when the wise men show up, Mary and the baby are inside, and the wise men go in, and upon seeing the child again, these pagans, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, fall down and worship him. And then they offer these gifts that, let's just put it this way, only people who were in the Bill Gates class of wealth could have afforded. Next, at least one of the wise men has a dream warning them not to return to Herod. And Matthew tells us they departed to their own country, probably Babylon, by another way. Now let's reread the three verses that we're going to be spending most of our time on this morning. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So Joseph reappears in the story at this point, and we see another angel who in a dream warns him about Herod and tells him to skedaddle to Egypt. Now, if you're reading the story up to this point for the first time, and you know even a very little bit about the topography in the Middle East, you have to wonder why on earth the angel tells Joseph to go to Egypt. Jerusalem is only six miles from Bethlehem, and in a larger city like Jerusalem, this family could have easily eluded Herod. Frankly, other places would have been much closer than, than uh, Egypt as well. Egypt from Bethlehem was over 100 miles. So Mary and Joseph, had they not had to go to Egypt, they could have stayed among their own people who spoke their own language. But for reasons that we're going to see later on, God wants them in Egypt, so immediately they pull up stakes and they journey to Egypt. Now, we know that the stay in Egypt was not a lengthy one, though we don't know how long it was. Historians date the death of King Herod at between 4 B.C. and 1 B.C., somewhere in there. And if Jesus is born in 4 B.C., which is the majority opinion anyway among historians, then it's possible they could have only been in Egypt for a few weeks or months. At most, it would have been a couple of years. Matthew, who we were reminded last week wrote his gospel with the goal of explaining how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, he explains why God injects Egypt into this story in verse 15. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You see these kind of references to the prophet or prophecies in Gospels Matthew in just about every chapter, 
In this chapter, there's three of them. In addition to the Old Testament reference, which is a quotation from Hosea here about Egypt, earlier in the chapter, as Andy read, the leaders cite the prophet Micah as the birthplace for Bethlehem. Finally, just two verses after this text that Andy read, when Matthew reports of Herod's butchering of the children, ages two and under in Bethlehem, their grief is compared, or the experience of the mothers, the grief is compared and seen as the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. So we have these three prophetic issues right here in this chapter. Matthew is constantly revealing how many of the major life events, how many of the major ministry events of Jesus were predicted in the Jewish scripture, and there are a raft of them. And he does here in Matthew chapter 2, he does that when he connects, on the one hand, Jesus and his family coming out of Egypt after Herod died, and on the other, this verse from the prophet Hosea, that as we'll see, referred to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Let's read it again. Matthew says in verse 15, this, this return of baby Jesus to Israel from Egypt after Herod dies, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. This is what we're going to spend some time thinking about because this can be somewhat confusing. It really, however, tells us something very important and very interesting about who Jesus is and about the God who is sovereign over history. As we said, Matthew takes this verse from Hosea chapter 11, which is one of the most heartwarming chapters in the Old Testament. If you haven't read it sometime, it would do your heart good to read Hosea chapter 11. In this chapter, the prophet Hosea records the tender care that God has given to Israel, which the prophet portrays as his fatherly care. But the same chapter also portrays God as Israel's husband, who repeatedly suffers the serial betrayals of Israel as she incessantly commits spiritual adultery against God, as they worship these pagan gods of the neighbors. The chapter also includes stern warnings of the coming wrath that God promises to bring as a punishment for Israel's adulterous behavior. In verse 1, we see God as the father of Israel, his chosen people who he'd raised from an infant nation, and he uniquely loved these people. In this verse that Matthew will quote later in chapter 2 of his gospel, God says through Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So Hosea is, of course, referring to God delivering a much younger Israel when about 900 years earlier in their history, he brought this then child Israel out of slavery that they had experienced in Egypt. That's what Hosea is talking about. Okay? In this chapter, chapter 11, there's a clear tension between, on the one hand, God's fatherly love and mercy, and, as Israel's husband, his holy jealousy and his desire for justice over her continual adulteries. And the emotional climax of Hosea 11 is in verse 8, where God reveals his transparent love for Israel, even in the midst of her adulteries. And so in the middle of all of these threats, threats of wrath, 
he says this, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. Gary Smith does a great job of explaining this verse. He says, God struggles with his decision and laments having to punish his people so severely. He cries out in the anguish of love, how can I do this? These words do not suggest God is confused or does not know what to do. Rather, they simply express the emotional intensity of God's love and anxiety in human terms that the audience can appreciate. Now, with that as background, now let's turn to think about Matthew citing this one verse from Hosea chapter 11 with relationship to God calling baby Jesus and his family back from their flight to Egypt. And the obvious question when you think about Hosea 11 and Matthew's quotation of it is this. What could possibly be the connection between God calling the nation of Israel as his son out of Egypt through the Exodus and God calling his son Jesus out of Egypt to return to Israel after Herod died. Okay? There has to be a connection because Matthew draws a direct tie between the two because he quotes Hosea to refer to Jesus, even though Hosea originally referred to Israel. Okay? Are you getting where I'm coming from? You didn't think you'd have to think on Christmas morning, did you? <laughs> the truth is, as we see in Hosea, first truth, and you need to know two truths to understand this. The first truth is, in the Old Testament, God repeatedly refers to Israel as his son. We see this a lot. We see it very vividly in places like Exodus chapter 4. Moses has been called by God, and so he's been in Midian for all of these years, and God calls him back out of Midian on his 40-year exile, and on the way back to Egypt, he's giving instructions to Moses as to what he's supposed to say to Pharaoh. Beginning in verse 21, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So here God refers to Israel not just as his son, but as his firstborn son. Centuries later, God promises through his prophet Jeremiah that even though Israel at that moment was under judgment, someday in the future, God will bring great restoration to Israel. And so he promises in chapter 31, verse 9, with weeping they, the Israelites, shall come. And with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim and Israel are the same. So as you read through the Old Testament, you see God repeatedly refer to Israel as his son or his firstborn son. And this should obviously ring a bell for all Christians because Six times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as God's firstborn son. In addition to that, in his baptism, God thunders from heaven, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We also read in the Old Testament where there is going to be a future son of God, not Israel, 
who would one day appear. So in the Old Testament, you have Israel as the Son of God, but you also have prophecies that point to a future Son of God, not Israel. And this is mainly in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes his covenant with David here, and he says of David's son, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is not just Solomon he's talking about, because Solomon was not given an eternal kingdom. This mainly refers to the much later son of David, God's son, Jesus. The point is that even in the Old Testament, we get a picture of a future son of God who will in some way parallel Israel as God's son. And that leads us to the second truth that helps us see how Matthew can take this verse about Israel and apply it to baby Jesus. And that is, in the New Testament, Jesus is repeatedly portrayed as the new and better Israel. Jesus is repeatedly portrayed as the true Israel. This explains why God calls both Israel and Jesus his beloved son. As we'll see, the point of these two identical references to refer to two very different entities, Israel and Israel's Messiah, is to reveal this. When you look at the life of Jesus as God's son and what the New Testament reveals about him and the contrast that with the Old Testament reveals about God's son Israel, it's clear that God sends Jesus as the true and better Israel. Now, if you're confused, just follow me. It's going to come clear, I promise, in a minute. Greg Beale says it this way in his book on biblical theology. He says, since Israel disobeyed, God has to come do what it should have. So he must retrace Israel's steps up to the point where it failed and then continue to obey and succeed in the mission that Israel should have carried out. Now let's explain that. But let's first back up a little bit. Think of it this way in relationship to something we've already seen in our study of Ephesians. We've seen already that Paul teaches that God put Adam on this earth as his human, image-bearing son as the head over humanity and to steward this earth so that it would display the glory of God. But in his sin, Adam failed. So God, as we've seen, sent Jesus as the second Adam. And Paul uses those exact words in Romans chapter 5. The second Adam to begin a new human race, as we've seen in Ephesians. And after his creation of humanity, God's second major attempt to create a people who would glorify him is the creation of his chosen people, the Jews. He chose them, he separated them out from every other people by establishing sacred covenants with them to be his people. But like Adam, Israel also repeatedly, incessantly, consistently failed as God's son. After they returned from their 70-year exile in Babylon for breaking the covenant, even with all the prophecies about Israel, that there would be a new day when Israel would be faithful and triumphant, to the disappointment and confusion of so many Jews, that day never came. They never became a great nation, as so many of the Old Testament promises gave them hope for. And the reason is because those promises weren't for national Israel. 
So the New Testament, as we've seen in Ephesians, teaches that Jesus comes as the second Adam, the new and better Adam, if you will, to succeed where Adam failed as God's son by bringing about a new race of people united with himself, that he would redeem from the sin and the curse of Adam. But now we see that the New Testament also reveals that Jesus comes as a second Israel, the new and better Israel, the true firstborn son of God to succeed where Israel failed. Now let's just think about some ways that the New Testament writers reveal that. They reveal Jesus as the new and better Israel. First, think about the pattern of events in Jesus' life that clearly are parallel with the history of Old Testament Israel. First, as we've seen today, when Israel was quite young, God called his Old Testament son out of Egypt. And as this verse in Matthew chapter 2 reveals, while Jesus was still very young, God calls his New Testament son out of Egypt. Second, after the exodus from Egypt, God's son Israel passes through both the waters of the Red Sea and also the Jordan River under Joshua. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, God's true and better Israel, Jesus, is baptized in the Jordan River. And for what reason? He doesn't have any sin. He tells John the reason that he's being baptized was because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, at least part of what that means to fulfill all righteousness is that Jesus, as the true and better Israel, also goes through the waters of the Jordan in baptism. And it's no accident that at his baptism, God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He never says that about Israel. A third parallel between these two sons is seen in what happened to Israel after the Red Sea. God's son Israel did what? Well, he went into the wilderness for 40 years to be tried. Well, what happens to God's true and better son, Israel? Jesus, after he passes through the Jordan River in baptism, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. The difference is, Israel horribly, desperately failed their trial in the wilderness, while God's true and better Israel, his son Jesus, was utterly faithful. But it's not just these parallel events in the lives of Jesus and Israel. But there are other things in the New Testament where clearly there are parallels being drawn by the New Testament authors with Israel. For instance, in the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly pictured as a vine or a vineyard. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels and he starts talking about getting rid of the vineyard, God getting rid of the vineyard, the Pharisees took great offense because they knew the vineyard was Israel. Okay? But listen to this in, in chapter 5 of Isaiah. He's talking about Israel and he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting." So Israel is a planting of God. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Have you ever wondered why seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus calls himself not just the vine, but the true vine? Why is that? Well, could it be because as God's Old Testament son, Vine, I should say, God's son Israel didn't produce good fruit, but instead yielded rebellion and repeated failure. Whereas God's son Jesus, as the true and better Israel, as the true vine, produces only good fruit 
in his life, in his death, and through his branches, the church. Also, we know that in the Old Testament, God repeatedly reveals the Jews as the sons of Abraham. Abraham was the beginning of the race. The 12 tribes of Israel are Abraham's descendants. But the New Testament, in its opening genealogy in Matthew, presents Jesus as the son of Abraham and the son of David. Also in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 16 that the seed or the offspring of Abraham is Jesus. There's another shared identity between the Old Testament Israel and the new and better Israel, Jesus. Finally, and there are many more of these parallels that we just don't have time for, in the Old Testament, the Jews are presented as the servant of God. God says in Isaiah 41.8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. The same prophet Isaiah also calls the coming Messiah God's servant. In several chapters in the servant psalms, 40 through 55. But in chapter 42, in the very next chapter, after he just called Israel his servant, he's describing someone who is definitely not Old Testament Israel. And he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now those verses are quoted in Matthew 12 referring to Jesus. So Israel is the servant. Jesus is the true and better servant. The point has been made. Jesus is the true and better Israel. Again, this is why Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can quote an Old Testament verse out of Hosea 11 that clearly refers to Israel as God's son who brings, he brings him out of Egypt through the Exodus and apply it to his true son, Jesus, the true and better Israel. Now, I, I hope you find that at least mildly interesting. But what's the point? <laughs> We just don't want to be theologians. What's the point? Where, where, what's the payoff here? Well, the first and the main point is to reveal to us the unique glory of Jesus and of God's redemptive plan. We must never forget that us, the all-knowing God, past, present, and future, they're just like screens God has in heaven. They're all the same. <laughs> He doesn't, he does, he's not linear like we are. He created time. He's outside of time. And so for God, he creates history from the back to the end of the beginning. So how does he use that interesting feature of the Bible to reveal to us the absolutely unique glory of Jesus? Well, in many ways, but one way is to show, for instance, that Adam, though he was created as God's highest creation, sinless, and bearing, unlike the angels, bearing the image of God, even with all of that on his resume, he wasn't up to the task of being the head of the human race. Only Jesus, as a new and better Adam, could rightly live as the head over his new humanity, the church, that would ultimately look just like him and will rule and reign with him forever. Or Abraham. Abraham was a righteous and devout man with whom God entered into mind-blowing covenants. 
But he was not up to the task of being head of an obedient chosen people, a true nation of royal priests. Only Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the true and better Abraham, could alone be the source of a new eternally blessed royal priesthood, a soon-to-be-glorified chosen people of God, the church. Or King David. King David is uniquely gifted in all of the scriptures, and he was a powerful warrior king, a man after God's own heart, but ultimately he fails dismally, and he never achieved the glory intended for him. Only Jesus, as the true and better royal son of David, could, as king, take the government of this world upon his shoulders and reign forever. And Israel... Though they were the beneficiaries of untold blessings from God, the law, the prophets, the covenants, the temple, the promises, they too were dismal failures as God's son. Jesus alone, as the true and better Israel, the ultimate son of God, could assume that mantle and live in perfect obedience, succeeding in every way that Israel failed as God's son. That's one point. So when you read the Bible, the Bible's about Jesus. <laughs> That's what all this is about. It's all about Jesus. And it's all about glorifying Jesus because he's the true and better everything. One more point of application. If you're here today or watching on the film or on the camera and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your King and your treasure, you need to know him and come to know him in this season of God's grace and mercy. And we alluded to this in the responsive reading. When we speak of coming to know Christ, firstly, we don't mean simply believing what the Bible has to say about him. You may believe all the right things about Jesus, and be warned, James says, the demons also believe and tremble. Please think about this. In Hosea... God reveals himself in a state of anguish because he is both a loving father and a jealous husband. In addition to seeking justice for his rebellious people, he also experienced a desire to spare his children what they deserved. And so there's that tension there. And God hasn't changed. At this time, in this season of salvation history, on the one hand, he has sent his only son into the world to pay the penalty for the sin of all of those who would come to know him in faith. And he did that because he is an infinitely merciful God. Now he waits for sinners to repent of their sin and turn to him so that he can cleanse them with his shed blood, the shed blood of his beloved sin, that their sins, son, that their sins might be forgiven. That's the good news of the gospel. But the scripture, as we read in the responsive reading, also reveals that there is a day coming, either when a sinner dies or when Jesus returns. And in that day, God's mercy for sinful humanity will be spent. There will be no more tension within him. The time for mercy for sinners will be over, and he will bring about eternal judgment on the idolaters of this world, those people who placed their own lives above his own. And there will be no reprieve and no pardon 
and no second chances and no opportunity to give an explanation or excuse or say, please, can I just have one more shot? It's over. Now he holds out his outstretched hands to welcome anyone who would come to him in faith and repentance. But one day he's coming with an iron rod to judge the nations. So come to Jesus, this glorious Son of God, today. Admit you're in desperate need of a Savior to come into your life and place new desires in your heart that would treasure him as Christ, that would treasure him as your highest love. May God give us the grace to live for the glory of Christ the true and better Israel, the ultimate Son of God, for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, this isn't necessarily the easiest stuff to think through, and yet Matthew expects us to know it because he quotes Hosea 11. And so it's not like this is graduate-level Christianity. This is just understanding who Jesus is. Jesus, we're grateful that you fulfill the law and the prophets and everything else in the Old Testament that pointed to you. God, please help us to reverence Christ as our King, as our Savior, and our treasure, because as we've been reminded today, he's worthy of that. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our time uh, standing and worshiping God through song. So let's close our time together singing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus.